Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. When you drive up outside, you see a, something that you think looks like a Coliseum. But once you walk in and you see the seats all the way around the racetrack, you see a flat end field, you see the racetrack bank going into the grandstand part, then you got to think about, you know, what the Romans thought when they walked into the Coliseum. And to me, it is the Coliseum that all us racers go to. Uh, no, no other track in, in that we run, as far as NASCAR is concerned, uh, even holds a light to to be in a coliseum like Bristol is. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. I know it's been a minute since doing this, and I apologize. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to do as many episodes this season as things went all topsy-turvy because of COVID-19. I certainly had intended to keep at least the post-race podcast going this year, but that proved untenable because of limitations and restrictions related to the novel coronavirus pandemic. But we had a lot of good sound about Bristol Motor Speedway from some big names whom we talked to heading into Saturday night's Cup Series playoffs first round finale that'll be at 7:30 p.m saturday on nbcsn and with this being the first time that bristol will be an elimination race as the track moves nearly a month later in the schedule it seemed a good opportunity to bring the podcast back for a special episode such as this one so you'll hear some of those voices in our saturday pre-race show but we couldn't use all of it we couldn't use all of the interviews that we did with these guys so we wanted to find a home for some of these great quotes these great recollections that we heard about Bristol. And Scott Keith, who is one of the NASCAR and NBC producers, thought the NASCAR and NBC podcast would be a good place for that. So many thanks to Scotty for supplying the idea for this and for him and David Galata and some others who helped deliver all of this great audio that we could use on the podcast. So here are the thoughts of Richard Petty, Daryl Waltrip, Rusty Wallace, and Dale Earnhardt Jr., on Bristol Motor Speedway. Each of them have special connections to this track. DW won a record 12 times, including seven in a row. Rusty earned his first cup win there and had eight more, making it his best cup track. The King doesn't have quite as much success, but he spent a lifetime and career watching Thunder Valley evolve into the last great Coliseum. And the same holds true for Dale Jr., who virtually grew up watching his dad win nine times at this track. So both of them have a certain affinity for this place as well. I'll be guiding you through all of their thoughts and insights. I'm not going to identify them because I don't really want to get in the way of the flow. And if you're a listener to this podcast or a subscriber, you're likely going to know their voices. So 
Let's hear their answers to some common questions about their favorite memories of Bristol, what makes Bristol so tough, and why all of them tell fans that this is the place to be in NASCAR. If you're going to be a race fan and pick out a race, all four of these guys say this is the track that they tell people they should go. But we're going to start, naturally, with the first impressions they had walking into Bristol Motor Speedway. And also, naturally, we'll start with Richard Petty, the king, because he's the king. You know, when I drive up outside and see see the circle around the, the racetrack, see the grandstands and all that, and you say, man, it, you know, this is something here in, the middle, in Tennessee, having a, this kind of a structure. And then when you walk through the gate and look out at the racetrack and look at everything and look around and see all the seats all the way around, uh, and then you really think about when they call it a Coliseum, that's exactly what it was. I can imagine people living in Rome and going to the Colosseum in Rome. This is the same feeling I think I get when I walk in and, and see Bristol, see how big it is. I think what fans and, and don't realize is how from one race to the next, even though one race in the spring, one race in the, you know, the night race is in September, how the track would change. Uh, we'd run the racetrack on a Sunday afternoon, and it was one way, and we'd go back there on a Saturday night, hot, slick, probably one of the hottest, slickest, most difficult races you'll ever run in your life, and the track would be totally different. So you couldn't just show up every race with the same setup and expect to get the same result. So every time I walked in the track, I looked at the track, and I said, wow, it looks different than it did when we were here in the spring. Uh, wow, the groove it looks like it might be a little higher, a little bit lower. So I think for me, I, from the minute I walked through the gates until the minute I walked out of that place, I was always analyzing the conditions. What's the weather going to be like? What's the track going to be like? Do I need this much right front spring? Do I need that much right front spring? I constantly was, uh, I, I was the onboard computer. Uh, we didn't have computers back in my era. And so the driver was basically what they relied on for all the information. So from the time I walked in until the time I walked out, I was thinking about what I needed to do to my car to make it the best it could possibly be. I didn't have to be the best. I just had to be better than everybody else. Because there were a lot of times when I took doggy cars there, and I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to be able to keep up and would lead the race. So the race pace changes from the night to the day. Conditions change from the night to the day. And sure, when I walked in there, I walked in there with an air of confidence. I walked in there. People watched what I did. They watched my car. They watched what we did to the car. They analyzed what we were doing, hoping they might find something that they could do to their car that make them as good as we were. And, and, and so you walk in that place and you have this air of confidence. You've got a great car, a great team, and you know you've got a, a, an incredible great opportunity to win, and you don't want to screw that up. So that's the first, that's the first thing that enters your mind when you walk in. If I don't screw this up, I'm going to win this race. It, it actually, when I went to Bristol for the first time, just really blew me away. And then when I finally settled in and thought, man, this is like this track I talked about earlier, Winchester, Indiana. It's a track, you know, up there that we ran on the American Speed Association. It's big and fast for a half-mile track. But, you know, it was just something that um, the, all the seats, and you always heard how big it was, to the fan, you, I really understood it. It overwhelmed me when I walked into it. Yeah, I think my lap around that track was like 15-second lap, and back then, 15 seconds around Bristol was screaming, and 
it was just an honor to be able to get on that track. But when I got the pole position and I had time to reflect, I went, wait a minute, man. I grew up in the short tracks. I've been used to this, and this is kind of the like a, a track I've been running on. And I keep mentioning Winchester, Indiana, Salem, Indiana. Those are tracks that when myself and Quickie and guys like that cut our teeth, uh, we ran those tracks. And so when I got to Bristol, even though it was overwhelming, I kind of was used to it. it. It overwhelms you. It overwhelms you with excitement. It's one of those tracks you just get jacked up when you go in there. And why is that? Because there's 158,000 people jacked up, and you know that's the big one, especially the night race. You go to the night race at Bristol, it's the big one, man. You know you're walking into something special. And for me, um, I'm just talking about myself. I always ran good there. So if I was behind and in trouble at other racetracks, losing points, I always had this confidence going into Bristol that I'm going to make it up tonight. I got a good shot of winning this thing, and I'm going to gain a lot of points back. And so for me, going into Bristol was a big confidence booster, but it was overwhelming. And I knew I was walking into Big House when I walked in that joint. I remember going as a little boy to Bristol. I was just in all of the night race there. Uh, the high banks really kind of threw the cars up on the racetrack, and, and you could basically look directly at the roof of the car. The banking was so steep. And the cars and the drivers, you could look with the lights and the and, and the way everything was sort of in close proximity. You could watch the drivers turning and the wheel and fighting the cars through the corner and understand kind of how challenging that experience was for the drivers. It just seemed like an impossible race physically and mentally. The first thing that I think is just, and I, I feel that way every time I go, even after all these years, is its growth over the last three decades has made the every time you go there it feels like you're seeing something new or it's bigger than it was the last time physically larger than it was the last time it's really the only track on our series schedule that has a college football or coliseum style atmosphere and that really you know you feel that energy from the fans all the way around the racetrack and 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 they're so close on top of the action they're part of the race they're part of the emotions, they're part of the, the heartbeat or the, 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 they're, they're part of the experience. Um, they, they, they affect the ebb and flow of the race itself, uh, being so close to it. It's, it's real. everybody really is, is all, you know, all enjoying that experience together when you go to an, uh, a race at Bristol. So why should fans go to Bristol Motor Speedway? It's a case that all four of these drivers have made many times over the years. I would tell them that it was the best racetrack to go to as far as watching a race. And, you know, just the deal of being a Coliseum, being where you could sit anywhere and see the racetrack, see the whole everything that's going around the racetrack. And so from a spectator standpoint, it's probably got to be the best racetrack that NASCAR runs on as far as the spectator being able to see what goes on around the racetrack. And how no matter where you sit on the racetrack, you can see all the way around the racetrack. So I always recommend, if people want to go to a race, I always recommend Bristol. If they've never been to a race at all, they can go there, they can sit anywhere, they can see everything that happens. It, it all happens right in front. You can see the pit stops, you can see the, what's going on around the racetrack, you can keep up with your car or everybody's car. And uh, so from the spectator standpoint, from my standpoint, looking at it from a spectator's deal, then, you know, it couldn't be a better racetrack 
to have somebody to go to the very first race they ever go to. Yeah, well, so that, that, that's kind of a question I get asked a lot. I'm not a big race fan. Uh, what would be a great race for me to go to? And I always tell them, go to the Bristol Night Race. And it's, it's for all the reasons that we have talked about. Uh, you set, you basically almost feel like you can reach out and touch the cars. The way the tracks, the way the grandstands are made, the cars are so close to you. The sound, the sound is deafening. Uh, the, the teams have trouble communicating. It's hard for the driver to hear the, the spotters and the crew chiefs. So the sound is deafening. And, and then, and then just the, the fear, the, the, the speed of the cars going around that racetrack in, you know, roughly 15 seconds. So if you, if you glance away or if you turn around to talk to a friend, you turn back around, your, your guy has already run five laps. So everything happens so quickly there. And everything is, is so magnified there. Uh, and in the night, it's just something about the night racing that just brings that all out even, even more than, than, uh, than if you were there in the daytime. So the night race is the hardest race you'll run. Uh, and 500 laps there. And if you want to see a show, if you want to see the drivers at their best and at their worst, I mean, I've seen guys get out of their car so mad they go fight, end up in the big red truck talking to Mike Helton or some one of Bill France or somebody, uh, that place, place brings the best in it, the best out of you, and it also brings the worst out of you. You know, I got people who ask me all the time, hey, man, I want to go to the race. Which one should I go to? And I tell them, go to the Bristol Night Race. And they say, why? I said, you're not going to believe what you're going to see. Buddy, you're not going to see nothing like this anywhere, but you better bring some earplugs. Every time I always uh, meet somebody who's never been to a race in person, I don't tell them to go to the Daytona 500. I don't tell them to go to Indy uh, or any of the, you know, Vegas. I don't tell them to go to any of those tracks. I tell them to go to Bristol. And specifically, I tell them to go to the Bristol night race. I know that if they've never seen one in person, or maybe they're a new fan who's never watched a race, period. I know that, that Bristol night race is exactly what it's going to take to hook them and make them fans immediately. And uh, they'll go to all the other races after that, and they'll be a big fan of the sport, having experienced that for the first time. Because it's it's sensory overload. It's just there's so much the sights, the sounds, the smells, everything's right there in front of you for you to have, and you can reach out and touch it. It's all tangible. Um, to me, the Bristol Night Race is our best product. Yeah, I I think that one of the things I like about night racing, particularly on short tracks, that's how I grew up. Dimly lit half miles all over the southeast, but you didn't see the sparks during the day. You didn't see the, the sparks flying out among the cars. You didn't see the tire smoking. You didn't see the brakes glowing because all those things you didn't see in the daytime, but you see at night. And so it, it just, it, it ramps up the feeling that, that not just you have as a driver, but as the fans have. They see those things on the, I'm a see it, feel it, touch it kind of guy. And I think fans are too, really true. Uh, NASCAR fans are those kind of people that they want to see those brake rotors glow. They want to see those sparks fly. They want to see those tires smoke. They want to see side, you know, bumping into each other and putting donuts on each other's door. And I, I for whatever reason, it just is not, uh, it, you don't see that during the day like you do at night. And the night race was, uh, there was a, there was kind of a cloud that hung over the racetrack. Uh, and, and all the carbon monoxide and all the, Stuff that came off the cars, the brake dust and the, 
and, and the fumes and everything that came off the cars, it, they, they just hung over the track. It's a, it's a bowl. It's a coliseum. And so nothing escaped. Everything stayed right down inside the racetrack. I've gotten out of that race car. I've won the ride. I've been standing in Victory Circle. I couldn't even remember what day it was. I would be so worn out, so tired, so dehydrated, probably a little carbon monoxide poisoning, just so many things that, that we had to deal with that drivers don't have to deal with today. And, and, and you'd be standing in Victory Circle, and it'd take you a while to realize, hey, I just won this race, and, 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 and what a, an incredible accomplishment that was under the conditions. Favorite memories at Bristol? They unsurprisingly range from the bad to the very, very, very good. I love that racetrack. Uh, it, it reminded me of the Nashville Fairgrounds. It reminded me of Salem, uh, some of the other half-mile tracks I had raced on. So I, I love that racetrack. And I was a short track punk. I mean, that's, that's what I did for most of my early years of my career. I ran all the short tracks all over the southeast. And so when I went, and, and, I, and I'd already won a few races there driving the Gatorade car. But when I went to drive for Junior Johnson, remember, Kale Yarborough led all 500 laps of that race driving Junior's car. So Junior knew a little something about Bristol. I knew a little something about Bristol. Junior knew what kind of car I needed there. Junior knew kind of what kind of setup I needed there. And you put my ability with Junior's knowledge, and we were just unbeatable. We, had, we, were, we were just dominant. Uh, the, 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 the thing we worried about most about going to that race was when somebody was going to beat us. Because you knew it couldn't last forever, but uh, seven races, that's 3,500 laps. Uh, basically, not making any mistakes, having a good car, and having a good pit crew, and putting it all together and, and you know, ending up in victory circle. It just doesn't happen very often. <laughs> you know, I, th I think when I think about Bristol and I think about the races we run there and stuff, and, and like I say, we won two or three races there, but... What really stands out is is one time we was up there running the race, and uh, I think I, the motor blowed up on the white flag lap, and and I coasted around, stopped, got out of the car, and the guys had to run two or three laps to catch up with me, and uh, I, th I that's that's my memory of Bristol more than more than winning is probably losing. I've been dominating the Bristol and lost on a pit stop. I've been dominating and come in too hot and get a penalty. I've been dominating and go get ready to lap a lap car, and I miss them by two inches, and, and I clip them, and I go sailing into the wall. Bristol's one of these type of racetracks. You think you've got the deal handled. You think you're going to win, and it's all over with. you got it covered, and you make one little tiny mistake, and bam, man, you're in the wall, and your day's over. For me, my favorite memory had to be my very first win at Bristol, and one of the coolest things was I had a great car that day. I won my first race, and I came down pit road. And the first person that got to my car to stick his hand in there and congratulate me was one of my heroes, and that's Leonard Wood. And wouldn't you believe it, in 2013, Leonard Wood and myself get inducted into the Hall of Fame together. He was the first guy to shake my hand for my first victory, and we go in the Hall of Fame together. That, that was awesome. What do I remember about my dad? Um, telling me about Bristol. I, we didn't really talk much about it until I started driving there. And um, actually, my first cup race at Bristol, um, Dad got up on the top of the hauler and got on the radio and told me to when to lift and when to get on the gas. And it was completely 
opposite of what I had been doing. Um, he, he asked me to lift uh, right around the flag stand. I was like, wow, that's way too early. But then when he told me where to get in the gas, it made sense and uh, really helped me get around that racetrack. And what's important about that, I think, is that Dad never told me how to drive race cars, ever. That was the only time in my entire life that my dad sat down with me and actually gave me any type of instructions about driving a race car. And it happened at Bristol. There also are myriad reasons cited as to what it takes to do well at the world's fastest half mile. I think you'd probably have to ask Daryl that, that question. Uh, I never did win but three races there. Most of the time we ran very competitive and stuff, but I just wasn't able to, to pull the trigger and win the races. But it was just a very consistent racetrack that, that you had to stay on your toes for the full 500 laps. So uh, maybe a lot of times I lost my concentration and uh, – Maybe that's the reason I didn't win some more races there. I, I was really good at Salem, Indiana. I won a lot of races at Salem, which is a half-mile half high-bank racetrack. I went to Winchester a few times. Nashville was my playground. And so I, I, was, accustomed, I was familiar with the high-bank, fast half-mile racetracks. But it was always – I listened to other drivers, Bobby Alston or Cale or David or Richard, any of those guys, and they always talked about – 500 laps at Bristol was the hardest race that you had ever run in your life. And I always thought, well, what could be so hard about that? I run 200 lappers all the time. Well, I can run 200 lappers. I didn't realize myself how difficult 500 laps at Bristol was. It, it, they were right. It was the hardest race I'd ever run in my life. And I was always intrigued by wanting to go there. And uh, so I went there the first time with my Mercury, me and Jake Elder. And uh, I'd been running these little sportsman cars had a little fiberglass seat I ran all the time, and it was fine for a 200-lapper on most racetracks. And I made Jake put that seat in the car, and he said, boy, you won't last 50 laps in that seat. That thing will eat you up. I said, don't worry about it, man. I, 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 I'm, used to these, I'm used to these races. I'm used to these high-bank racetracks, fast speeds. I'll be fine. Guess what? 50 laps, I was screaming to get out of that race car. And I, I got out. It's the only time I ever had to get out of the car. Got out of the car, Dick Brooks got in and drove for a little while, and that, that seat, same thing, was eating him up. So I ended up getting back in the car and finishing the race, and that's when I realized people weren't kidding. This is the hardest race that we run. It's the hardest race on the schedule. 500 laps at Bristol is a man killer. It's a man eater. And, uh, buddy, when you go there, you better have the right attitude. You better have the right car. You better have the right setup. You better have everything right if you think you're going to hang in there and win that race. Well, I, you know, the first time I walked in there, I thought, well, look, it's a half mile. It's a, and and it, was, it was asphalt at the time. And uh, I thought, well, what could be so tough about this? But what makes this place tougher than any other half mile I've ever run on? The biggest difference was the number of cars. When you start 43 cars at Bristol, uh, you could be on the pole. And the guy in last place, 43rd, he's on the back straightaway. He's a half lap down before they drop the green flag. And you're in traffic in about 15, 20 laps. And so it's not just the track you're fighting with. Uh, that, track, that track's bad enough. You have to deal with that. But then you have the, you're constantly racing around people, lapping people, passing people, people trying to pass you. Uh, it, it's, it, and, and it happens at such a high rate of speed. You, you run that track in about 15 seconds. And so, I mean, you just blink your eyes and you made a lap at that joint. And you're trying to race and you're trying to stay out of trouble and you're watching for something to happen ahead of you or looking behind you. Uh, you never rest. Pit road's difficult to get onto. Uh, the track was difficult to navigate. 
Everything about it, from the time you walk in the gate till the time you walk out, is a challenge. Everything is a challenge. I don't care whether you're coming in the pits. The noise, the noise will drive you crazy. You can't talk to your crew when the cars are on the track. You have to wait till they quit running. Uh, it's just so many elements that take that 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 is Bristol that is so different than any place else you go that it it makes it the hardest race that we run and the most unique race we run. I think probably the biggest thing for me was finally settling in that you know it's super fast racetrack and and things happen so quick um and that pretty well was the first thing that really settled in was gosh i mean i can't believe how rapid everything is happening you don't even have time to think i mean you better be up on the wheel we call it all the time because things are going to happen super fast and you better react super fast yeah for me sitting in the car and as the laps went on one thing that was uh giving me a problem with my neck. My neck was just falling out. There were so many G-forces. I'd get 400 laps into a 500 lapper, and all of a sudden, man, my neck was just killing me. And so I went and bought a special neck exercise machine. And every time I get ready to go to Bristol, a month out, I would start exercising my neck just to give it the strength I needed to hold on because there's a couple times where I had to finish the race with my right hand holding my head up. I was so tired. And I won some races like that at Bristol, holding my head up with my right hand. I'd go into turn one and hold my head up, and as I come off of turn two, I'd put my hand down and back on the steering wheel. It was tough, man. It was it, it, Bristol uh, beat your body up big time. Driving around the track as, as a driver uh, going there, I used to always say that the first sort of 50 laps on the track, every time you go, um, it's, it takes a while for your brain to catch up with what's happening. It's kind of like an old VCR tape and putting it on fast forward. Uh, that's kind of the way it feels when all that's coming at you going around the racetrack for the first handful of laps. But eventually, it kind of all slows down and, and it starts to make sense and you start to sort of feel like you, you can keep up with what you're seeing. But I'm telling you, it's such a fast racetrack and happening so quickly that when you go there for the first couple of laps, you're in over your head. What makes Bristol so special? We'll wrap up with the perspective of Dale Jr. and DW. I feel like that the atmosphere at Bristol is a selling point, how it's sort of sculpted out of this side of this mountain. The camping, uh, the smell of the campfires, barbecues, sound of music, all across the acreage outside of the racetrack. There's a, it's a kind of a carnival atmosphere, very fun atmosphere. You can make an entire weekend out of it, camping with your family. There's just a lot to do at that racetrack, and, and that's not even counting the race itself. And uh, it's going to put on a good show. It's going. It, it's always going to land with a with an with an excellent race, and and kind of the whole weekend experience for a family kind of culminates to the event. Uh, it it kind of you know the event stuff kind of the final period at the end of the sentence and it and i know it will deliver when it comes to action and drama and and fun for for people that are there in person and and i uh there's nothing comparable to it you can't i can't take you to anywhere else in the schedule to any other racetrack and give you what bristol's going to give you well first of all it's the last great coliseum and you know why because there's no place like it there is no other racetrack. There's no other half-mile concrete racetrack surrounded by 165,000 seats. You're looking down on the action all the time. So 
it earned its reputation because it, it, it earned it. It earned its reputation. It is the last great Colosseum. It is the it is man and machine. It is the gladiators fighting each other. Uh, it's it 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 did. I think that last great Colosseum just says it all about what that place is and what it's all about. It's the last great half mile racetrack, the fastest racetrack, half mile racetrack in the country, and it's the last great Colosseum. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.